What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Giants fans, and welcome to a new edition of the Valentine's Views podcast here on Big Blue View Radio, part of your SB Nation family of podcasts. Please like, share, and subscribe if you're watching us on YouTube. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts across the Big Blue View Radio Network. All right, with the 2023 NFL season finished now and the, the 2024 Hall of Fame class having been, uh, having been voted on, attention for New York Giants fans turns to the, the 2025 Hall of Fame class. That is the first year of eligibility for Giants quarterback Eli Manning and uh, Manning's Hall of Fame uh, credentials, Manning's Hall of Fame candidacy always seems to be a a subject of debate, a controversy about a non-controversial man. And uh, here to help me discuss that is, is longtime NFL columnist and current author of a great book on the New York Giants called Once a Giant, Gary Myers. Gary, thank you very, very much for uh, for hopping on. Hey, it's a pleasure, Ed. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Hope things are well with you these days. Um, yeah, everything's come great. Cool. What I wanted to ask you, I'm framing the debate with Eli this way. Eventually, eventually he's a Hall of Famer, one way or another. I, I've moved beyond the is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer debate? My question at this point is, is he a Hall of Famer the first time he's on the ballot? And, you know, where do you, you know, the you know, point blank, where do you come down on that? Yeah, no, I, I've been on the committee for, you know, about 12 or 14 years now. And I think I'm anticipating the most intense debate that we've ever had because um, this it really appears to be, you know, Ed, a, a very divisive issue. There, there's people that look at, at Eli's credentials, two Super Bowl championships, two Super Bowl MVPs, uh, game-winning drives in the last two minutes of each of those games against the Patriots. I mean, I don't need to remind Giant fans of all that stuff, but, you know, the first time prevented the Patriots from being known as the greatest single-season team in NFL history. Um the way I judge quarterbacks and coaches are how many rings do you have and, and how did you play um, in that stretch that led to winning the Super Bowl, you know, meaning the playoff games leading up to it. He beat Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers on the road in Lambeau in those two great uh, playoff runs. And then he beat Brady in each of the Super Bowl and Brady and Belichick will group them together. And in, in my opinion, I know he's just a overall a 500 quarterback. But what else do you want from a guy who you're considering for the Hall of Fame than to have led two game-winning drives in the last two minutes to win Super Bowls? That, to me, uh, defines a Hall of Fame quarterback. But the uh, warning here for Giant fans is um, – I already know there's a bunch of people that don't feel that way who are on the committee, so it could take some convincing. It, and it seems it seems like it's always been that way with Eli. Shoot, Gary, you know you 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 covered the Giants long enough to know that that even during the height of his career, I think there were still Giants fans who weren't convinced about what Eli was. You know, do you, you remember it that way as well? Oh, of course. Ed, I remember, if you remember this game, Thanksgiving in 2007, I believe it was against the Vikings, um, Thanksgiving weekend. Um, 
Yeah, um, I think he threw four interceptions and had two returned for touchdowns. And I wrote a column after that game questioning whether Eli was the long-term answer at quarterback for the Giants. It was his fourth year, and he just seemed to be the same player. Good enough to win some games and, and certainly enough to lose a bunch of games. And two months after I wrote that column, he beats Tom Brady in the Super Bowl. And so the point is that as late as um, Thanksgiving of 2007, and I wasn't the only one, I'm sure there were a lot of giant uh, people around the Giants and Giant fans who felt this way, like, when is this guy going to turn the corner and, and be the guy that Ernie Corsi always thought he could be? And the light bulb went on for Eli uh, in the playoffs that year, you know, winning at Tampa at number one seed Dallas in that brutally cold overtime playoff game at Lambeau. And then what he did, you know, neither he nor Brady had a great game in the Super Bowl that year. Brady led what the Patriots thought was the game-winning touchdown drive with that uh, pass to Randy Moss with like two and a half minutes to go. And then Eli just marched the Giants right down the field. Of course, had the benefit of the Tyree catch, but I, I think it was from that point forward that people realized that what Eli was, that he was going to throw, be a quarterback that threw a lot of touchdowns. He was also going to throw a lot of interceptions, but be his best in the big games. And, Ed, I think we would have looked at him much differently. In 2008, the Giants were definitely the best team in the NFL up until the night after Thanksgiving – when Plexico had that incident at the bar when he shot himself in the leg and, and Eli missed him terribly over the last month of the season. I think maybe there was one touchdown pass to a wide receiver over the last month. And then they, you know, they got the, they got the bye, but then lost to the Eagles at home in the playoffs. And um, I thought the giants had a terrific chance to repeat as Super Bowl champions. And if they had, I think we would looked at Eli much differently and he was having a really good season up until that point. That was the best team of of Eli Manning of the of the Manning Coughlin era. I think no back no up to two thousand seven for a second. I think you'll appreciate this. Two thousand seven is when my website Big Blue View was born, and the very first thing that we did at Big Blue View was debate whether Eli Manning was good enough. That's the very first thing we did when yeah. we launched this website was debate whether he was good enough. And and like you, even you know, midway through the season, I still wasn't convinced. I think that you know, nobody saw what he did in that 2007 playoff run coming. But what it what it leads to for me is we get the regular season record, 117, 117. We get the fact that he's thrown a lot of interceptions, but a lot of great quarterbacks have thrown a lot of interceptions because a lot of great quarterbacks have a lot on their plate. And I, I always looked at Eli like, you know, a lot of guys will throw the ball out of bounds and protect their stats. With the game on the line, Eli would throw it into a tight window and say the heck mm -hmm. with it. If it gets picked off, it gets picked off. We have to try to make a play to win a game. But for me, I always think of sports in terms of moments, in terms of, you know, what you do when the lights are the brightest. And, and for me, for me, it's not Eli's fault that the Giants were 117 and 117 during the, the, the breadth of his career because he didn't pick the players. <laughs> you know, he didn't, he didn't pick his teammates. But for me, I don't know. You can't think about football, and you can't think about this era of football without those matchups against Tom Brady and the Patriots. And for me, for me, doing what he did on those stages makes him a Hall of Famer. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And um, I think one of Eli's problems, besides the fact that I thought the Giants failed him personnel-wise over the last – I guess maybe you can draw the line to the second Super Bowl. After that, I thought, you know, other than the one year they made the playoffs with with McAdoo, um, I thought the Giants failed him in not surrounding him 
um, as that offensive line that he had in 07 and 11 as they began to retire and lose effectiveness, they, they just never really replaced them. Um, they missed on a bunch of draft picks, and he didn't have a quality line around him. Um, I thought the skill positions, you know, other than Beckham, um, you know, it, it wasn't um, – it wasn't high quality, that he just didn't have a lot of places to go with the ball. The problem was that he was not Peyton, and he was always compared to Peyton, and he wasn't as good as Peyton. But when you look back on their careers, how many, they each have two Super Bowl rings. And again, I judge quarterbacks a lot by the rings, and Peyton had a lot of failures um, in the playoffs. If he, if he finished over 500 as a playoff quarterback, it wasn't by much. Maybe in that last year, when the Denver defense carried him to that second uh, championship, maybe that got him over 500 as a playoff quarterback. Eli was eight and four in the playoffs and people say, well, you know, he didn't win a playoff game other than the two years that the Giants won the Super Bowl. Well, that's a big butt there, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, he, he won two Super Bowls and he won eight playoff games. And uh, only one of those games came at, as a home game. So he won seven either road playoff games or, or Super Bowls, um, which is pretty darn good. And I've made the comparison recently, Ed, on uh, on Twitter, where I and it was just a stat based comparison of Warren Moon's career versus Eli Manning's career. They basically were both five hundred quarterbacks. Eli exactly five hundred quarterback. Uh, Moon within a game or two in either direction. I'm not. I don't exactly remember. Warren Moon uh, never got to a Super Bowl. Their touchdowns and interceptions were, were fairly similar. Uh, and Warren Moon was a first ballot Hall of Famer. And now some people are questioning. I know you're not, but some people are questioning whether not only is Eli a first ballot Hall of Famer, but whether he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, you you think the argument is really. Does he get in the first ballot? Because for you, you're assuming he's going to get in eventually. I'm telling you, there's a bunch of voters who don't even feel he's Hall of Fame worthy. And so the first ballot argument is going to be, like I said, I think the most intense. I think if he doesn't get in first ballot, it's wrong. I do agree with you that he eventually he will get in. But we have to also think about that this is might be his best chance to get in for a while because the following year, Drew Brees is eligible. I think that's the year that uh, Philip Rivers also becomes first-time eligible. And then the year after that, Ben Roethlisberger uh, is eligible. Then a few de- years down the road, you know, Tom Brady. And I'm not saying that we can't put two quarterbacks in in the same year, but – for, this, for Eli's candidacy, it's better if when we're discussing him in the room that we're not also discussing another quarterback like Drew Brees, who will be eligible, like I said, uh, in, in 2026. It's better for Eli not to have to be compared to Brees, although I can make an argument that Drew Brees and Sean Payton, for all the years they were together and considered you know, one of the top two or three quarterback combinations, certainly of that era, I can make the argument that they underachieved by only getting, not only only winning one Super Bowl, but they only got to one Super Bowl. And if you're of that caliber um, coach-quarterback combination, I think you should have gotten to more than one. And just like until Peyton's last year, you can say, can we say he's one of the greatest of all time with only one ring? And getting that second ring, although I don't think he was responsible for it, um, I think that lets us look back at Peyton's career a little differently, having won multiple championships. And uh, I want to add one other thing. Jim Plunkett is the only quarterback who has won more than one Super Bowl, who is not in the Hall of Fame, who's already been, who's eligible at, at this point. And I'm not sure he's ever getting in. Yeah, it's, uh, it, there's a lot of layers to the debate. Sure. There, there really, really are. The one thing I, I kind of wanted to back up to a non- Hall of Fame thing that you said that I wrote many, many times at Big Blue View over the years. 
in, you know, talking about Eli and, you know, people would look at Eli's stats and say, oh, it's not that great and whatever, whatever. But I always felt that it wasn't Eli that let the Giants down over the back half of his career. I always felt Mm -hmm. like it was the Giants that let Eli down. And I always felt like if we had this debate in 2012 or 2013, then I don't think anybody's going to question whether Eli Manning's a Hall of Famer. But when you throw in the back half of his career, when as a team, the Giants did nothing, I think that does complicate it. Yeah, and if you look at some of the, if you break that down a little bit, and you know, it looked like he had a, a great chemistry with Odell, right? It, it um, that that could have that should have lasted much longer. I know Od- Odell got hurt, um, but he was a knucklehead. I mean, I don't think anybody would really argue that, and and that led to him getting traded. Uh, I thought that was horrible for Beckham's career, and it certainly didn't help the Giants. I know they got Dexter Lawrence out of it, and um, and uh, I'm, I'm trying Peppers. to remember. Who Jabril Peppers, I think, was the other one they got out yeah, of Yeah, right, and then another draft pick that uh, I can't remember who it was. but I'm not sure uh, either. Yeah, but, but they had an elite receiver in Beckham who should have had a long career with the Giants and had a bunch of yards and touchdowns, and, and he and Eli – I thought were a great combination and Beckham kind of blew that. And I think he's probably lived to regret that considering what's happened in his career uh, since he left New York. Um, Eric Flowers, a a high first round pick who was supposed to be, you know, a cornerstone of the offensive line. You know, he obviously, you know, didn't work out. Um, The the drafts just overall on both sides of the ball, Jerry Reese lost his touch his last few years. Um, I thought the first year with McAdoo would lead to more good stuff. And the second year of McAdoo just kind of fell apart. And then he decided to go to Geno Smith, which really, you know, um, kind of got giant fans to turn against him and certainly parts of the locker room turned against McAdoo in the day after Geno started that game in Oakland, uh, both he and, and Jerry Reese got fired. Um, and then you, you went through Pat Shermer, and uh, that that was a bad couple-year stretch, and they, they drafted Daniel Jones, and Eli lost his job. And I thought he retired maybe a year too late, that things had already started to fall apart around him. Um, and I, I agree with you, Ed, that what happened from the Super Bowl Forty Six on hurt Eli's candidacy that now he wasn't retiring after the 2011 season. That would have been an eight year career. But if you win two Super Bowls in eight years, even though it would be considered a short career, it's probably looked at differently than winning two Super Bowls in, in 16 years. And the last, however many years of his career, uh, what will be the last eight years of his career, only one playoff appearance uh, that, that has definitely hurt him. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. 
Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Gary, I'm curious, before we get off the, the Eli topic entirely, and I do want to hit a couple of other uh, Giants-related topics with you, you mm-hmm. talked about you talked about this probably, you're anticipating the most divisive discussion that you've that you've ever had you know as as a hall of fame voter and just to be clear how many how many candidates is it that are allowed that that you're allowed to to vote in each year is the, it caps at eight all right i, I will I'll, I'll take you through the process because this might be uh educational for some of your uh viewers and listeners who aren't really familiar with how it works so at some point in the fall we'll get a master list, which is basically, you know, 125 to 150 uh, people. And if there's somebody on the list that you want, that's not on the list that you want as a voter, I get to nominate them. Fans can send in nominations. And then the first thing we do is we cut it down to 25. Um, And that's done electronically. They'll send us the list. They'll give us a deadline. Okay, cut it down to 25. And then after we get to 25, we'll cut it down to 15. At this point, Ed, uh, there's really no, there are there is no conversation among voters unless we do it individually. Uh, there's no like Zoom call or conference call among the voters to discuss the candidates. You can send out, and teams do send out, um, endorsements of candidates with their qualifications, you know, information sheets, some videos or whatever. Once we get to 15, that's when the meeting takes place in the middle of January. Uh, This year, we were supposed to go to Atlanta to do the meeting. Um, In the past, we used to do it on the Saturday before the Super Bowl in person at the Super Bowl site. But um, once in, in 2020 was the last time we did that. Then COVID came and we started doing it by Zoom. Then the NFL Network decided to have NFL honors on Thursday night instead of Saturday night. So that forced us to have our meeting before we even got to the Super Bowl. So we've done it on Zoom the last three, four years about mid, in mid-January. Like I said, this year we were supposed to go to Atlanta and do it, but because of weather, um, they called it off and we did it by Zoom again. So we get to the meeting and we have 15 finalists. And I'm pushing like the seniors and the coaching uh, contributor uh, vote and discussion to the side because that's got nothing to do with the modern New York candidates. So there's presentations made on each of the 15 candidates. Then we voted from 15 to 10. And then we voted from 10 to 5. And once you make the final five, you need 80% of the votes from the 50 voters. So assuming everybody's in the room, that means you need 40 out of 50 to be elected. At that point, the five candidates are not competing against each other. We vote on them individually, yes or no. If you get 80% yes votes, you're in. So that's basically how it works. And the presentations are made by a writer who covered that player's career. So I usually make the presentations on the Jets candidates. Bob Glauber, who had a long career at Newsday, makes the presentations on the Giants candidates. And, you know, the Browns writer will do the Browns and the Cowboys writer will do the Cowboys, et cetera. Um, So the the first major step for Eli in this will be getting to 25, which I fully anticipate, and getting to 15, which, again, I fully anticipate – and then the conversation, discussion, slash arguments will start at the round of 15. And um, so we usually, in, except in very rare cases, we'll wind up with five modern era um, candidates that will be selected on an annual basis. So, so what you're saying here, Gary, is that if Eli doesn't get in, we blame Glauber. 
We blame Glauber. Yeah. We don't blame you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, if you want to blame somebody, but um, and no. listen, I know you, I know you're joking about that, but th- there are selectors who have been blamed for a candidate not getting in by the fans of that team, and it's not fair. No. All you're really doing is presenting the guy's case. Absolutely. Now, some people are better than others at making the presentations. And I'm not going to call out you know, names here or anything like that. Um, you know, fortunately, in the candidates I've presented with the Jets, starting with Curtis Martin and then Kevin Mawai and Darrell Rivas and Joe Klecko and, um, and others, um, Winston Hill as a senior, um, you know, they, they've gotten in. The year that Bill Parcells got in, Glauber was also presenting Michael Strahan, so he asked me to do Parcells, and I did that, did Bill, and, and he got in. Uh, Strahan got in on his second year of eligibility. Glauber did a really good job presenting him. But with Eli, because I have really strong opinions on this, um, and I want to make it clear that after the presentation is made, it's a five-minute presentation, any one of the other 49 voters can speak up. And I have spoken up on many candidates who weren't Giants or Jets. So after Glauber makes the initial presentation on Eli, I'm definitely going to speak up. I might not go right after Glauber because there is some strategy involved here. Because we we do think at times there's an anti-New York bias uh, in the room that people think, well, too many Giants and Jets get in. And I, I think that's ridiculous. You get in if you qualify. It doesn't really matter in my opinion, what market you played in. But not to pile on the voters with going Glauber and me back to back because oh, New York, New York, you know, they're trying to strong them up, strong them us. I'll let some other people talk about Eli uh, before I'll, you know, give my opinions on it. And um, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, there are some guys like Peyton that you just kind of stand up and the guy says Peyton Manning and he sits down and, Anybody have any comments? No. And Jerry Rice was like that. Dion was like that. Brady's going to be like that. Eli will not be like that. Uh, it's going to take, it's going to take um, uh, some convincing. I haven't done a straw vote, and I'm not going to. Um, I've had the voters feel going into the meeting. I, I might call some of my friends who are on the committee whose opinions I trust to get their feel for it. But like, like I said, this is not – you know, uh, uh, an easy issue. Right. Not a slam dunk by any, it, it push comes to shove. Do you think he gets in first time or is it going to take a while? I, I don't have a great answer for you on that one. Um, yet because, you know, I look at Kurt Warner and did, let me, let me ask, let me throw this back at you and give you a, a, a good question. And I've said this on a few radio shows lately. Do you think that Dan Marino would switch careers with Eli Manning? Because every time we mention Marino in the context of greatest of all time, the second sentence is, but he didn't win a Super Bowl. John Elway, until he won a Super Bowl in his last two seasons, was known for being 0-3 in the Super Bowl and getting blown out of each game, 39-20, um, 42-10, and then I think 55-10. So that was to the Giants, Washington, and San Francisco. In um, in a three-year, in a four-year period, getting blown out of three Super Bowls. And winning it in his last two changed the narrative on, on John Elway's career. Uh, and that was had a lot to do with Terrell Davis, the sixth-round pick, came out of nowhere and changed things. And he was as responsible as anybody for winning those two Super Bowls. So I'll ask the question to you again, Ed, which I didn't give you a chance to answer it before. <laughs> Do you think that Dan Marino would switch careers with Eli Manning? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I know that if I was Marino, I would. If I was Jim Kelly, I would switch careers oh, with Eli Manning. But at least Kelly said, could say I got, he got to four Super Bowls right. in a row. Right. Marino got to one in his second year. And never got back, and he got blown out of the game against San Francisco. I've always felt like you know the argument 
with Don Shula. You know, he's got the most wins. Is he the greatest coach? Well, think about from 1983 to 1995, which was his final season with Miami, I believe, because Jimmy, I think, got there in 96. So Shula had Marino for more than 10 years and got to the Super Bowl in the second year and never got back with a guy who's generally considered a top five quarterback in NFL history. So can can Shula be considered the greatest coach of all time when he had one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time and only got to one Super Bowl, never gave him a running game, never gave him an elite defense. And when you hear people say, well, is Belichick the greatest quarterback of all time? Look at it. He had the greatest quarterback of all time. So he, you know, kind of, you know, diminishes what Belichick did because he had Tom Brady. I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't penalize Belichick because he had Brady, but give Shula a slide and say, well, you know, he's the greatest coach, but look what he did. My argument is look what he did with Don, with uh, Dan Marino. I don't think Belichick loses anything in the argument by saying he had Tom Brady. Tom Brady was a sixth-round pick. And, Belichick's got to get credit for drafting him and developing him. I was I mean, going that's to not say a negative. Yeah, I was going to say not to mention the fact that it was Belichick, you know, way back in the day, who pounded the table and said, you know, why is this guy still on the draft board? You know, even though we don't need a quarterback, you know, right. we need to draft this guy. Well, I, I don't know that he, he pounded the table as much as Dick Rabine, who was the Patriots quarterback coach and is, is the one who did a lot of work on Brady leading up to the draft, who highly, highly recommended uh, Belichick take him. And I've seen the clips now of the draft room where Belichick just, you know, they were saying, and Scott Pioli has said the same thing, that, you know, Brady was over here on the draft board as the highest rated player. And the next rated player on their draft board at that point in the sixth round was all the way over here. And it's like, okay, we don't need a quarterback, but how can we pass on this guy? And then Belichick signed off on that. I think it was mainly Dick Rabine, but you have to give Belichick credit because he's the one that was making the picks. And, you know, um, Robert Kraft had just signed Bledsoe to a $103 million contract. So they didn't take him thinking, okay, you know, the next year Bledsoe was going to get hurt and they're going to put this guy in that nobody else in the NFL wanted and then he was going to become the greatest quarterback in NFL history. That was never the anticipation, but Belichick deserves the credit for, for picking him and then certainly deserves the credit for developing him and then having the courage, and I would say courage, that after Bledsoe recovered, after about two months of, of Brady playing, of sticking with him, and incurring the wrath of a lot of Patriot fans uh, and Belichick having gone through what he did with Bernie Kosar in Cleveland of first benching him and then cutting him and basically getting himself fired a couple of years later for running off the hometown hero that Belichick in that case said, I think Brady gives us our best chance to finish off this run in 2001 and win a Super Bowl. And then when Brady got hurt in the second quarter of the AFC championship game in Pittsburgh, and if you remember, Ed, there was no week off between the championship game and the Super Bowl in 2001. Brady you know, had a bad ankle injury in that game. Bledsoe came in, played a little more than two quarters of that game through a touchdown pass to help win the game. And on a short turnaround for the Super Bowl, he, he went back to Brady, who then won the game. So um, Belichick gets a lot of credit, in, in my estimation, for what happened with Brady, especially early on. Uh, and you'll see as, as time goes on here that people are going to downgrade Belichick's contributions in New England because of what happened after Brady left. Mm -hmm. Brady wins the Super Bowl and they say, look, he won it without Belichick, but Brady, Belichick struggled in four years without Brady. That just proves it was all Brady in New England. I, that, people couldn't be more wrong about that. I hear you. You know, it's, it's interesting because as, as we were discussing that, I was thinking about Giants and Giants fans and the, the sort of year-to-year -year history of the Giants. The Giants have four Super Bowl titles in the, you know four titles in the Super Bowl era they've been there five times 
Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, there was the what's commonly referred to as the wilderness years with the Giants. And then this last decade where, you know, there's been just one playoff victory since the last Super Bowl title. And fans are, you know what fans are like in New York. You know what Giants fans are like. And, you know, it's you talk to Giants fans and you read the comments on my website and it's the worst thing in the world to be a Giants fan. And John Mara is the worst owner on the planet and he should sell the team. And we're so miserable. And it's just life is awful as a Giants fan. And I look up and I say, well, you know, there are teams out there that maybe on a year-to-year basis they win eight or nine games and they're on the periphery of the playoffs and, you know, they get to be the Minnesota Vikings every year and maybe they make the playoffs and maybe they don't or they get to be the Falcons and they might be there and they might not be. But there's a whole lot of fan bases that would trade places with a team that's got four Lombardi trophies. I'll give you the, the best argument to support what you just said. And I, I say this to my friends who are giant fans who say the, the same things that you just did about, oh, the woe was me and all that stuff. The last 10 years have been horrible. Since the Giants won their first Super Bowl in 1986, there's only one team in the NFL that's won more than the four than the Giants have won, and that's the Patriots. That's okay. – that's that's a pretty good argument right there. <laughs> the Cowboys haven't been to an NFC Championship game since the year the last year they won the Super Bowl, 1995. The 49ers have not won a Super Bowl since 1994. They've lost three since then, and maybe you can say make an argument. Okay, you know they they won. Um, They've won four Super Bowls. They got four or five, the 49ers. 81, 84, they got five. 81, 84, 88, 89, 94. So they've won five and they've lost their last three. Uh, You can say, okay, at least, you know, the 49ers are getting to the game and the Giants haven't. But since the Giants um, – won their first title in 30 years. They went from 56 to 86 without winning it. But since they won their first Super Bowl in 86, only the Patriots have won more. And so before you start crying about the last 10 years, think about the Detroit Lions, as fun as they were to watch last year, last season, have never been to the Super Bowl. They're the only team that has played in every year of the Super Bowl era that's never even been to a Super Bowl. Um, you know, people might say, what about the Browns? Well, the Browns had that three-year hiatus where after they went to Baltimore and before the expansion team where they didn't play. So the, the Lions are the only one who have not been, that have been around for the entire 58 years of the Super Bowl era. So, and, and think, think, I always say to Giant fans, what about if you were a Jet fan? How would you feel? <laughs> right now, I, I know that the Jets oh. haven't made the playoffs in a long time, and the Giants haven't made, I, won a, you know, done a lot. They won the one; they've been to the playoffs once in ten years. But how would you feel in the same city if if your parents were Jet fans and that you became a Jet fan, and you've suffered like this? And you know, there are, there are so many people, you know, from my generation who obviously have never seen the Jets in the Super Bowl, that weren't around for Super Bowl three, that think it's kind of like a myth that the Jets even were good enough one year to get to the Super Bowl, no well, less win it. So well, a lot of other fan bases who have suffered more. Yep, and we both knew. It's funny because I had a, I had a writer on my staff for a while who also was doing some writing for the Jets, and and I said to her, when the whole Aaron Rodgers thing came down, when they signed, you know, when they, when they brought Rodgers in, I said, this is either going to be the greatest thing ever, or it's going to be an, a completely spectacular fail. And I asked her point blank, I said, which one's it going to be? And she said, it's probably going to be a spectacular fail because, because that's exactly what always happens with the jets. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, to think about, 
the fourth player of the season, the fourth offensive player of the season for the Jets, the season ended. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there's anything that is so typical Jets, that was it. Mm-hmm. Now, I felt bad for the fans, and I felt bad for the people in the organization who I happen to really like, who deserve to have a, a great season because they're really good people. Um, but, boy, if there was anything that was typical Jets, that was it. <laughs> and and the thing that I worry about for, for the Jets in this season coming up is, okay, it happened on the fourth play. But if it didn't happen on the fourth play based on how the Jets' offensive line was last year, it might have happened on the 24th play or it might have happened in the fourth game or the eighth game. But it was going to happen with a quarterback who was about to turn 40 behind an offensive line that was historically bad, um, that couldn't keep Zach Wilson healthy. And Zach was, you know, a really mobile quarterback. I mean, he's not good, but he was at least mobile. So if it didn't happen to Aaron Rodgers, then it was going to happen at some point. And unless the Jets drastically improved their offensive line going, you know, this, this offseason, I'm, I'm afraid what's going to happen to Rodgers this season. I don't, I don't wish bad upon anybody. I don't want them to get hurt. But unless they build a wall around them, and Joe Douglas has the greatest season offseason uh, in Jets history, and they go out and sign some quality free agents, and they draft somebody in the first round who's not going to be a bust that can protect Rodgers, you're almost afraid it's a matter of time before he gets hurt again because how, how can he withstand the punishment that's coming to him if the offensive line is not any better this coming season. Absolutely. Hey, Gary, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the offseason that the Giants are having. Um, you've been a lot of stuff swirling around the Giants with, you know, the, the Wink Martindale, Brian Dable yeah. stuff and so many changes to the coaching staff and, and, and questions about the future of Daniel Jones and, and, and what's going to happen with Saquon Barkley. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not doing it on a day-to-day basis anymore, right. but when you, when you look at the New York giants, you know, this off season right now, um, where do you think this is all headed? Just, you know, based on, on, you know, your, your background and your experience and what you've seen before. Yeah, I mean, I think the narrative would obviously be so much different if the first two years of Joe Shane and Brian Dable flip-flopped. If 2023 was actually 2022 and then last year they made the playoffs and won a playoff game, then you'd see the steady progress and improvement and figured to be a carryover um, to 2024. But because it was the other way around, we've already forgotten – about what happened with the, the playoff year and, and the playoff victory. And we're basing everything on just a horrific year that the Giants had last year. It's so, so disappointing that our perspective on Brian, Brian Dable being a long-term coach for the Giants has certainly changed. Now he's going into what most people consider to be, you know, uh, a win or, you're, win or you're out year for Dable, at least not necessarily a playoff or a bust year, but, would they win five or six games last year? Oh, it's six, but it's it it okay. it didn't it just didn't look good. Even some of the some of the games yeah. that they won, none of it yeah. looked good. Right, I, I totally agree with that. Um, so I, this is a huge off season for the Giants, both for Shane, although to a little bit of lesser extent with Shane than for Dable. You know, Ed, the the thing that happened last year, and I read it in uh, in Pat Leonard's story and in the daily news. And I, I thought it was the most damning thing that I read about Dable of all the negative stuff that came out was that Joe Shane got on the headsets for four games last year to monitor the interaction between Dable and his assistant coaches during the game. I'd never heard of that before. I've been covering the league since 1978. I never heard of an executive from the league getting on the headset for the strict, for the intense strictly for the purpose of now I haven't seen Shane address this to find out exactly why he did it, but I I think we can connect the dots with the stuff that came out after the season between with the friction between Dable and some of the assistant coaches, specifically 
you know, Martindale that Shane needed to hear from himself what was going on. Um, I think that's such a bad look for Brian Dable, who I happen to like and and think he's a good coach, but um, I, I just wasn't impressed, you know, with his his game management decisions last year with his sideline demeanor I thought was horrible. Um, I thought he lost the Jets game by not letting Tommy DeVito throw the ball, except for those screen passes towards the end. He tried to protect what was like a three-point lead against the Jets the entire second half. I mean, that's not the way you coach in this league. If Tommy DeVito was good enough to be on the roster, then he was good enough to let him throw the ball. And he tr- he tried to, you know, sit on a a three point lead for a whole entire half. No matter how bad the Jets were offensively yeah. last year, you know what my biggest you, you know what my biggest problem with that whole game was not only you know the whole situation with Devito that you mentioned, but at the end of the game they face a fourth and one with less than two minutes to go. They've ridden Saquon Barkley the entire second half, and Dayball admitted, you know, we basically put the game in Saquon's hands. And at the end of the game, fourth and one, chance to win the game and run out the clock, they send out the field goal kicker for a kick that wasn't going to win the game anyway because it would have put them up six instead of three. And he misses because we find out later that he's hurt. And... He shouldn't have been out there to begin with. But you you ride Saquon Barkley as hard as you can possibly ride the guy. And then when you need a yard to win the game, you kick a field goal. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that, that was inexcusable. When I first began to question his game management skills, and everybody was, you know, on the Dayball bandwagon after he goes for two in Tennessee in the first game of the year to win the game. But what I, and I thought that was great. He went over the locker room right away by showing faith in the offense. It could have backfired on him. I mean, if you remember that Tennessee came down the field and almost won the game, but we tend to forget about that. What I really began to question him was in the, in the playoff game against the Eagles. When he went for it, like on the Eagle 45, I, I believe it was the Giants' second possession of the game. Philadelphia might have already had a 7-0 lead at that point. And they missed on the fourth and one. Philadelphia gets the ball and goes down, makes it 14-0. I thought it was a desperation move where he was basically admitting that he didn't think his team was good enough to win the game and they had to start doing really strange and bizarre things in the first half of the first quarter of a playoff game. And he was going to try to play around his offense the rest of the game because he didn't trust that they would be able to, or basically didn't trust his defense um, after the way Philadelphia, you know, marched down the field in the first possession. And I'm going, that, that I thought, I thought Brian Dable with about 20 other coaches in the NFL need to attend the Bill Parcells School of Game Management. And I, I'm serious about that. There's a lot of coaches that have relied on Parcells in the offseason for advice. And I know that um, uh, Bill is very willing to pass it down to the next generation. I think that Dan Campbell, who played for Parcells in, in Dallas, needs to spend some time with him after the say we saw some of his game management decisions in San Francisco in the NFC Championship game. Um, a guy like Brandon Staley, who wound up getting fired, definitely needed to spend some time with Parcells. And I'm being totally serious about this, that the guy is a great resource and Bill still has great affection for the Giants. And I think that Brian Dable should spend three days and go down to Florida and and just pick Parcells' brain on um, how to handle a team, how to handle game management situations. You know, with everybody going for it on fourth down, how does Bill feel about doing that when do you go for it on the two-point conversion forget about the analytics do what parcells did go by what you see and and have a feel for your team on how to manage certain situations because you're not going to manage the same situation the same way on a game-by-game basis because you get a different feel for how games are going you don't rely on a bunch of harvard graduates 
who are sitting there with their computers to say, well, you have a 70% chance of winning if you do this and a 30% chance of winning if you do that. If you're going against the best defense in the league, those numbers don't mean anything. If you're going against a bad defense, those numbers don't mean anything. It's it's no. each, each situation has to be judged individually. I hear you, and you know i I understand the growth of analytics, and I understand that those numbers should be something that a coach is aware of. But you know, I'm I'm also a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. And my issue so much with baseball and and growing with the NFL is exactly what you said. Allow the coach to use his eyes. There's a human element, always a human element beyond the numbers. What team are you playing against? Mm -hmm. How is the game going? You know, for example, what... um, what injuries might your guys have, you know, that the analytics can't account for? And, you know, what's what's the flow of the game, for example? You know, silly decision that I remember. I think the Giants went for a fourth and one last year. Daniel Jones' first game back from his neck injury. And what did they ask him to do? They asked him to stick his head in there and go for a quarterback sneak, tush push, whatever you want to call it, in his first game back from his second serious neck injury. And I was like, I don't even mind going for it here. But that play, you're asking a quarterback with a bad neck to stick his head in there and try to push 300-pound linemen? (laughs) You know? it's, know. it's, it's, It's the common sense of allowing football people to think football sometimes that that I think is missing you know when you when you go strictly with the analytical approach yeah um here's the one that drives me crazy you're losing 14 to 6 in the second quarter you score a touchdown and you go for two it drives me crazy me too because you know what happens you wind up chasing that point. If you miss, you wind up chasing the point you chase, the rest of the you game. You chase the point. You chase the point for the rest of the game, and you come down to the final two minutes. And the fact that you don't have that point changes your decision-making. I, right. I, I understand going for two, but I never understand it until you have to go for two. I... I don't think anybody should use the two-point conversion until like the second half of the fourth quarter. We're old, Gary. And we're old. <laughs> we're old school. <laughs> yes, we are. Before I let you go, Gary, just curious, uh, your thoughts on Saquon Barkley and whether he's a giant uh, next season or not. Uh, my, my gut feeling is he's not. I'd be shocked if the Giants franchise him again. Uh, they don't want to go through that again with him. Um, I think he's earned the right to test the market. Um, it would be nice if if he wants if if the Giants say come back with us, come back to us with your best offer, uh, and give us an opportunity to match it. Um, it you like to see loyalty in sports that way. Uh, I think the giant, the giant should the guy has earned the right to go test his market value at this point in his career. But my feeling is when you see what's going on around the league with running backs and and you look at a guy just like Isaiah Pacheco, who is a very effective running back for the Chiefs, who was picked was I think he might have been a seventh round pick, Ed, um, mm-hmm. from Rutgers. If you can find a guy like that who can be an effective every down back. Um, then I, I'd be really surprised at this point if the Giants to get a pay a running back over $10 million a year um, who has had a history of getting hurt. Um, they haven't won anything with him. I hate to use the argument. You know, they win six games with him. They can win six games without him. Um, I still think he's a top five running back in the league, but I think the Giants will look at him as a replaceable part. And they can yeah, do unfortunately, it much yeah, un- 
unfortunately, at 27, what you wind up paying for is probably declining production. Yeah. You know, it's not when you look at the history of leg injuries and, and, you, and you look at all of those things, running backs don't get better after six years in the league. They just don't. Right. And I, you know, Ed, I, I think a really good uh, example of, of it backfiring is the Cowboys giving Zeke Elliott that long-term contract that wound up, you know, causing cap problems because he only had maybe, he was only effective for maybe two years of that long-term deal. And I, I thought that, Saquon probably made a mistake last year not taking the two-year contract that would have, you know, gotten him a bunch of good guaranteed money this year. Um, but, you know, he sees the money being thrown around around the league, not nec- not at running back, but um, with the Giants are paying, you know, Dexter Lawrence and Andrew Thomas. And, he, you know, he thinks, you know, where's mine? I'm, I'm just as important to the team as, as they are. But the difference being that, just the outlook for teams has changed on on how they want to pay running backs. And it's basically because their shelf life is so short of having elite seasons. And and you're right. I mean, how many more great years is Barkley going to have? He might not have any more great years. We don't know that. The Giants don't know that. Barkley probably thinks that at his age he's got at least, you know, three or four more good ones. But um, – I think it's kind of a gamble. Somebody, I think, will pay him. He's not going to get a four-year contract averaging $15 million a year. I don't see that happening. He might get a high annual average on a two- or three-year deal and maybe a bunch of guaranteed money. But, you know, if if somebody's willing to pay it, Giant fans might say, well, just for argument's sake, if the Cowboys are willing to pay, you know, Barkley $30 million guaranteed on a three-year deal, why won't the Giants do it? Why should another team pay it and the Giants won't do it? Well, it's just Giants are a, a team that probably needs a cap space. They're a building team and figure that maybe before they're a Super Bowl contender again, that Barkley's career will be over. So they don't want to invest in him. It's just a philosophy that most teams well, have right now. And it, and it also, you mentioned the Cowboys. It also has to do with, with is that, particular player in this case a running back like Barkley are you using that player as a building block or is that a finishing piece for a team that you think is right there capable yeah. of winning yeah. you know if if you think he's a finishing piece and you want to and you want to overpay him for a year or two years and you know you're overpaying him you know then then fine but if if you're the Giants you probably can't do that well, the other thing is that everybody like a year ago was saying, well, you look at what Christian McCaffrey's contract was kind of the standard. Well, let's face it, Ed. Christian McCaffrey is a better player than Saquon Barkley. Absolutely. And I, I don't know who can possibly argue differently. He has now he's had his injuries over the years, but since he's been in San Francisco, he's been, you know, pretty healthy. And He's a dynamic player every week. Barkley is not. And I would pay McCaffrey before I would pay Barkley. And that's just the reality of the situation. Now, can Barkley be a McCaffrey-type player on a really good team? Can Would Barkley be better for the Cowboys than Tony Pollard? Should the Cowboys pay Barkley before they would pay Pollard? 100%. Because I think he could, he might be a really important piece to that Cowboys offense. But at this point, is he a really important piece to a Giants offense that still has an awful lot of building to do and doesn't have a, an elite quarterback? Probably not. You can probably spend the money building up other portions of the offense and go draft a running back in the third round who could turn out to be a great player. Absolutely. Gary, last thing. Got to let you. Uh, Got to let you talk about the book. Once a giant, you uh, you were on my show a while back uh, talking about the book. Just uh, how are how are things going with the book? How's it how's it being received out there? And uh, and where can people still get their hands on it? Yeah, I mean Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any place online you like to buy books, or you know in the bookstores, you know around the metropolitan area. And 
I'm I'm so appreciative of not only Giant fans, but just football fans who, who have purchased the book and, and I've gotten feedback from them and how much they've enjoyed it. And you don't need to be a Giant fan um, to really get something out of my book. It's about the 86 Giants, but it really centers on and what I consider to be such a crucial issue, which is life after football and the, the impact, both positive and negative, that playing the sport, um, the, the impact that it has, the great stuff, you know, the high profile, the money these guys made by playing football, although certainly just a fraction of what today's players are making. But then the negative part about it, the, 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 the challenges from a mental health standpoint and a lot of guys are suffering who who went through multiple concussions when they played and it has impacted their mental health uh the physical problems with the hip shoulder and knee replacements and 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 just the the different injuries that they incurred that has again impacted their ability to lead a healthy life at this point as they're in their 50s and 60s and then the financial impact in a negative way because the health insurance uh, was so inadequate once the career is over. And it still is. Play, just think about this. Players only get five years of health insurance after they retire. Back in the years of the 86 Giants, it was 12 months, and then it became 18 months. Players need their health insurance at this point in their lives, players from that generation, because it's in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s that they're having their major health issues. And unless they got really good jobs, after they finished playing, that had really good health insurance, it can cause financial problems as now they're having to pay these bills for the problems that they're incurring because of playing football. And again, nobody forced these guys to play. So you can have that argument. But on the other hand, nobody told them in the 80s that concussions, multiple concussions can cause cumulative effects later on in life. And if you have one, it's easier to get the second. And if you get two, you might pay for it later on in your life. They weren't telling them that. Maybe it was out of overall ignorance with the league and the, and, and the teams. And maybe the players should have been doing, doing the research, but they were relying on their teams to tell them this. And the teams maybe didn't know it. And now they're paying the price. But at the same time that I tell some really sad stories, and four players told me that they – considered taking their own lives as a result of football injuries. And these four players go on the record and tell really sad stories. To balance it off, I I do have some really fun stuff about how the 86 Giants became a brotherhood. It's a bond, Ed, that is still really strong today and has resulted in the guys who are doing well, both financially and health-wise, helping those who need help, including Bill Parcells, who has loaned $4 million dollars to about $4 million total to about 20 of his former players who are having a financial crisis. And Bill has no expectation of getting the money back. So, I mean, that's one of the really heartwarming stories to go along with heartbreaking stories. And, um, again, I I really enjoyed reconnecting with so many of these players. It was hard listening to some of their stories, but it was also, you know, heartbreaking stories. But, again, there were a lot of heartwarming stories that show what a tight knit group these guys are and how much they still care about each other. All right, Gary, I appreciate, appreciate that. You know, it's a, it's a great book. Giants fans. You should, uh, you should go out and get that if you, uh, if you haven't already. And Gary, thank you very, very much for, for talking Eli and for talking uh, Giants football and, and all of that. So hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll do it again. That'll be great. I always appreciate what you have me on. I know we touched on a lot of areas, and um, there's a lot going on with the Giants this offseason. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, and depending on how, how some of it all shakes out, we'll, we'll talk about it again and, uh, and, and see. You know, Giants fans, Giants fans love the they, – they love the, uh, the, 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 the controversial stuff, I guess. You know, it used to be with the Giants, Gary, where – the only time you read about the Giants on the back page of the Daily News was when they did something good on the field. It's not necessarily that way anymore. <laughs> well, and I think that Giant fans and all football fans know that this has gone from a five-month season. And back when I first started covering, you really wouldn't hear anything 
until the draft. I mean, there'd be like a three-month dead period in there because it was before free agency. The combine really hadn't taken off. Um, you'd cover a little bit about the off-season program, but it, it wasn't like it was today that with the OTAs and and all the access that you have in the off-season. And certainly there wasn't free agency, which fans are totally into, and it's fun. So it was really quiet from the Super Bowl until the draft. Now there's really a, a football hot stove that, especially the beginning of free agency, it's so much fun. If you're mm-hmm. into this kind of stuff with teams and, and players, you know, all the rumors and the switching of teams, it's much better than baseball free agency, which once it starts, it, it kind of trickles out. The first few days of football free agency is dynamic. It's really a lot of fun. Yeah, it's great stuff. And and that'll, that'll be coming up soon. So yeah. We'll, we'll find out uh, we'll find out who the Giants bring in we'll find out whether Saquon Barkley goes somewhere else so lots of stuff coming up Giants fans the combine coming up uh, in a few days and uh, I'll, I'll be out there in Indianapolis once again wandering around looking for people to talk to and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that and hopefully you guys have enjoyed my conversation with Gary Myers so thank you as always for listening. Please stay safe out there, take care of each other, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.